Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and head of research Hong Kong for Bank Julius Baer. It's the beginning of the month again, and it's time for our monthly conversation with Grow. Let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China and Hao is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Thanks for having me, Richard. This podcast is particularly timely, given that we just had a Polybro meeting not long ago, and we see policy easing finally picking up. Well, the market is clearly most focused on the housing policy right now, given that line, uh, homes are for living, not for speculation, has been removed from the Polybro meeting statement. To be frank, I actually don't think that one is the most important change. It did happen before. It didn't lead to any major change in the guiding principle of the housing policies. But... I think what's more interesting is that for the first time, policymakers acknowledge the changes in the demand-supply dynamics in the Chinese housing market and the need for more flexible policies. So soon after the Polybro meeting, we already saw the Ministry of Housing guiding lower down payment for the first home purchase, as well as the mortgage rate, some tax relief or upgrade housing demand, as well as some relaxation for some credit requirements, etc., etc., now, the local governments of the four tier one cities have also announced some similar measures, except that all these measures are more guiding principles so that the market is still waiting for the concrete numbers and the details to evaluate the policy impact. So how my question to you is right now, I think the key question is how much of the home purchase restrictions will be relaxed or in your view as an economist should be relaxed in the tier one cities? We're clearly seeing diverging views among the economists on answering this question, but we do want to know what you think. But more importantly, how effective are these measures in boosting the new home sales? Because at the end of the day, that number is what we're looking at when we invest in equity market. I think it should be all removed. All purchasing curbs should be removed immediately. But I think right now, because Chinese believe in gradualism, that's a Chinese philosophy. We're doing it step by step. So instead of removing all the curbs in one go, trying to relax a little bit, you know, just try to see the result. But from data in going into the months of July, sales is down more than 30% year on year. So on a very low base. And also this year, one particularly interesting phenomenon is that once you get rid of a new or existing house, more secondhand house come onto the market to be listed. And I think in many of the cities, because of very slow sales speed, so the time to clear all the inventory, new home inventory, is about 18 to 24 months in many of the cities. It's one of the highest in history. And beyond that, you have the existing secondhand house come onto the market as well. And this is a very significant part of the market because in the past year, for example, we sold 10 trillion yuan of property. In the year before, we sold 18 trillion yuan in property. So we're talking about very significant secondary housing market that is also coming onto the stream. And that is because market expectation for home price inflation has changed. So back then, when Chinese buy a property, they always think that, wow, the house price always goes up. So even in the very difficult year of 2008, house price went down a little bit and then rebounded. And ever since then, the Chinese house price is always rising. So it beats any other asset class in China. So household 
see it as a, a very good way to put your money. And so because of this, many of the households actually borrow to buy property. And many of the households, according to the uh, PBOC survey a few years ago, uh, more than one third of the Chinese households has more than three properties. So that is very significant. And I don't think it's very uncommon. So it's very uncommon in a Western culture. But then for some reason, the Chinese faith is in the Chinese property. But now this faith is being bent, is being changed, is being altered, is being, I don't know, squashed maybe. So that's why many of the secondary homes are coming onto the market for sale. So I think for the ultra luxury segment, price is already down like 20%. So some of the ultra luxury properties are once deemed very safe because these are very unique type of property that cost 100 million yuan or more. And then the entire neighborhood is infested with very rich tycoon in China. So you're living in a very nice neighborhood. But even so, many of these ultra-luxury, unique homes are coming onto the market and they're selling at 20% less. You just imagine if you think things go, keep going this way, then you'll see inventory piling up. It's already piling up, but you will see inventory piling up even further how downward pressure on the price even higher, and therefore households to buy a property, the willingness of households to buy a property is actually even less. So even if you remove all the restrictions now, which should be now, it probably won't help. So I think 2021, 18 trillion yuan worth of property sales is a probably a peak for many, many years. So I think we'll be lucky if this year we can sell 10 trillion yuan. And I think one thing that you mentioned that makes me and I guess our audience a little bit worried is the massive supply that may come into the market. I've read some of the articles among the mainland Chinese economist community. Some of them were suggesting that, oh, why don't we just use the money to buy part of the supply and to artificially create shortage of supply so that that would be the most effective way to stabilize prices. To be frank, for me, it's sort of beyond my imagination because the first question that I would ask is, where do we have the money? But I guess we want to hear your thoughts on how, as an economist, do you think that makes sense? How likely that would be? What are your thoughts? Well, it makes sense to a certain extent. We don't have to worry about money. We can always print it, right? So that's fine. <laughs> but the problem is that it represents a wealth transfer from the state to the developers. So which developers do you bail out? And how much, at what price do you purchase their, their property? And if you look at the market price of many of these property, even though just now I said that price came down a little bit, but it's still for Shanghai, the average price, property price is at 60,000 yuan per square. So for an average Chinese apartment, that is about 100 square meters per apartment. So that is about 6 million yuan. 6 million yuan is each Chinese person's disposable income is 36,000 a year. All right, so it takes, I don't know how many years, as you can calculate, all right, so at least 20, 30 years to be able to afford an apartment. Many of these apartments, they were priced as such because the land purchase, when the developers was doing this construction, was very, very high. They get it from the local government at a very high price. So for many of them, the construction, the land costs 40,000 yuan per square, maybe even more. So if you want to buy from them, so how much are you going to pay? Are you going to pay the market price? Are you going to pay the cost price or even below the cost price because it's already very expensive? And if you pay below the cost price, would the developers want to sell it to you? Maybe not. And also, like just now we mentioned that there's a huge 
general inventory of secondary homes in the market. So why don't you buy those homes? Because those homes, nobody lives in it. So there would be like so many problems, so many arguments for and against. But overall, it's not a bad idea, but I don't see it being executed. It's definitely very challenging to execute it correctly. Okay, so let's put aside the housing policy for a while because the government has also rolled out quite a number of other stimulus measures. So for example, we have the 20 items to boost consumption. We've got a lot of measures to support the private enterprises as well. However, when we spoke to the investors, most of them are still fairly conservative, or even I would say they're skeptical. Some say that a lot of these measures are still just yelling slogans without many concrete details. Some say that traditional economic policies are more focused on supply side and demand is always harder to stimulate. So how, what do you think? Will you see this a little bit more positively this time? Or put it another way, how effective do you think the policies will be in terms of stimulating the end demand? Yeah, I think so far we've seen like thundering array of policies being announced. And it's almost like every other day we have a government meeting. So today we have NDRC calling Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Housing Housing and Construction, and the uh, PBOC, right? So they all group together and have a huge press conference. I think the market is disappointed today, you know, by the results, the announcements from the press conferencing, because you can see from the market price, the the market barely moved at all, because people were looking for new, concrete financial commitment. If you still remember back in 2008, we have this huge number, 4 trillion yuan. Right. So back then, the economy is like 40 trillion yuan. So you're talking about more than 10% of the economy being spent just to help the Chinese economy back in 2008. So today, we are at 120 trillion yuan economy. All right. So if you do 10%, that's, that should be 12 trillion. 12 trillion, right? So then you can afford to pay 3,000 yuan per month per person for half a year for that kind of money. But we're not doing it. For some reason, we're not doing it. So I think people are disappointed because there are many policies targeted in different areas, but there's no concrete financial commitment. There's no guidance. So for example, if you want to do Shantytown reconstruction, which has been announced two weeks ago, and you should say, like, how many are you going to do? And so because back in 2018, 2017, we started Shantytown construction all the way until 2019, we did 6 million units per year. Since 2019, and I think the whole project sort of running to a halt due to the pandemic. So in 2019, we did 1.3 million units. And I think that I don't see like new numbers uh, in the later years. So things like that. So you need to give people some idea, like some numbers to be to, to work with, especially for the market. Then, you know, if for us, if you're doing 12 trillion yuan, then I can quickly calculate, right? So how much GDP we can generate from there? the leverage effect, earnings, improvement, blah, no liquidity, then quickly the market will go up. Once the market go up, I think if you learn from the US uh, lessons from 2008 and 2009, there's a thing called wealth effect. So Bernanke said, well, once I cut interest rate, the stock market goes up and then people will be happy and then start spending, And which is, has been the case. Why don't we do that? I don't know. So the market is right to be disappointed, but then at the same time, don't lose hope because we know that they would keep coming with all up with all sorts of policies until it worked. People just have to be a little bit patient because right now the mantra is about targeted easing, targeted policy on a specific area. 
even for housing, for example, just now we discussed housing policies, right? So you were hoping for a blanket policy for the entire nation. But I think the mentality really is, is that, firstly, we don't mention houses not for speculation, it's for living in. So once we get rid of this slogan, then we leave it to the local government to come up with their own policy. Because as we know, in the real estate business, it's about location, location, and location. And so we leave it to the specific local government to come up with its own policy to be implemented. I think that's the mantra. So far, because of this targeted policy instead of a blanket policy, it's hard to shore up the confidence. It's very hard to show up the confidence. And besides that, there's no numbers we can work with. And that's why we are all pretty disappointed. But then at the same time, we shouldn't lose hope because we know for sure policy will keep coming. So I guess we still have to be patient and let the time work out itself. I think one thing that investors haven't discussed much, but I think is fairly important for the Chinese economy is SME, small, medium enterprises. SMEs is actually a substantial part of the Chinese economy. They are over 50% of the tax revenues, 60% of GDP, 70% of new technology, 80% of employment, 90% of the number of Chinese enterprises. So helping the SMEs may be even more important, in my view, compared to helping the large enterprises. Now, right now, we can see that there are at least two problems that the SMEs are facing. Uh, first, SMEs have a poor access to funding because banks are only willing to lend to the large enterprises. And second, there are more exporters in the SME segment compared to the large enterprise segment. But as you know, export is very, very weak right now. So how can you share with us how challenging the business environment is right now for the SMEs? And what policy suggestions would you say to help the SMEs to get through the challenges? Well, these guys are having a tough. So I think the three years of pandemic, many of the business has been destroyed because they're too small and very fragile, vulnerable to change in economic conditions. They are particularly sensitive. And also because it's such a big part of Chinese employment. As you said, it creates 80% of Chinese employment. And therefore, to solve the problems for the SMEs is solving the problem of unemployment, especially among the young people. Well, I think the situation is particularly challenging this time because if uh, recently I've been to a lot of Chinese cities. I've actually talked to, get opportunities to talk to many of the SME owners. I found them very diffident and pessimistic. So a lot of them are unwilling to lay out large capex to expand their business because they were afraid that policy could suddenly change because, you know, last three years, really bad experience. So it makes them reluctant to commit to capex expenditure. So as a result, as you can see, and just now you're saying on top of that, they're finding it hard to access credits, even though there are like Windows guidance for the commercial banks to lend money to the SMEs. The problem is that if you're a loan officer in a big bank, you are responsible for all the loans that you make. And even if you, after you leave the bank, they can still trace back to you. And if your loan goes sour, then you miss the opportunity for promotion and all that stuff. And maybe you get into legal trouble too. Then that way, it makes the banks particularly circumspect when it comes to lending to the SMEs. So there are so many problems. And I can spend the next hour you know, just discussing all the stuff that I came across. But to sum it up, it's very, very challenging. But I think for the smaller business, Another big cost is the employment cost. Just now, you said they, they create 80% of jobs. 
The problem is that the social security burden lands squarely on the shoulder of SMEs. If your SME is your higher person, his or her salary costs 100 yuan, let's say, 100. Then there's like hidden cost of 50, which is the social security cost that has to be borne by you as well. So it's just ridiculous. So total cost comes to 150. It's really hard for the SMEs to wear all these costs. And that's the reason why they say, oh, wow, well, just forget it. I'm not doing anything anymore. So in Chinese, we call, we call this phenomenon lying flat. So we're not refuse to try, basically. So as you can see, high cost, difficult access to credit, dividend or very low confidence, and also lost the willingness to try hard. So that's why now we're in a situation where we are now. And it really, really needs to change. And I think just having press conference, sure, giving all sorts of policies, it won't help that much. I think one concrete thing, I think there are already policies that to reduce the tax burden for the SMEs. But the problem is that many of the SMEs don't have income this year. Therefore, they can't use the tax policy, the tax rebate policy that the government gave them because they just don't have revenue to offset that. So one way the government can help out is really to take away at least some of the social security cost for the SMEs and so that to make them willing to hire people because it's cheaper now. And also it creates a social welfare net for the employees as well. So it's a win-win-win situation. And then confidence will come back, people start to spend, people get jobs and all that. So it's a really straightforward policy, but I think we're just talking here. So I'm pretty sure that the government may have thought of these policies, but because it's never been tried before, so the probability of such radical policy to come out is very low. So it looks like a lot of the creative ideas may be under discussion, maybe being considered, but the physical challenges in how to implement them are indeed very, very difficult. Yeah, unusual time calls for unusual policies. I think people need to keep that in mind because there are like many equilibriums in the macroeconomics. There's a positive virtuous cycle, which is, for example, the U.S. economy is in. So it creates a virtuous cycle where your credit start to flow, jobs being created, people get income increase, asset price increase, and therefore people are very confident and they go on and spend money, happy. And there's another equilibrium, which is a negative feedback loop. And this is where China is in now. And China needs to break this loop. Otherwise, it will be too late. Yeah, it's the confidence. So we've discussed a lot on the economic outlook. Now let's switch gear a little bit to talk about something that we all very much focused on financial market. First, we have to take a look at RMB. I recall that we did mention in our previous conversation that 7.3 is likely the low point for the dollar CNY spot. And indeed, when we got close to 7.3 at the end of June, beginning of July, we started to see the currency coming back. Part of it, obviously, is driven by the market warming up on the policy expectation, but we also seeing PBOC actually marking the daily fix of the RMB at stronger levels. So when we consider China policy and economic outlook, the U.S. policy rate, etc., etc., should we expect the RMB to rebound further? Or you think that it might be just hovering around in a range of 7 to 7.1, 7.2? What are your thoughts, Hal? Yeah, I think it's going to stuck in the range. But I think the 7.3 is the cyclical low that we've witnessed already. So we're past the low point. 
But then at the same time, because the Chinese economy is very weak and the Chinese currency is a very cyclical asset class. So if the Chinese economy come back strongly in the second half, which mm, I don't think so, but if so, then it would appreciate strongly in value. But I think more likely than not, the case is that because of this peace being policy that we're rolling out, so the Chinese economy is going to recover with lots of hesitancy. And so is the financial market. And so is the Chinese currency. And therefore, it's more likely than not that the Chinese currency would be stuck in the range between 7 and 7.2. And we don't see a very strong case for the currency to appreciate beyond that because exports is weak. The U.S. demand for Chinese goods is lower, not just because the Fed is tightening, but also because the supply chain has already shifted. So this year, the manufacturing investment in the U.S. is going through the roof. It's the highest in, I don't know, decades. So therefore, the demand for Chinese goods is actually substantially lower than before. And therefore, to argue strongly for a case of appreciating yuan, it will be a big ask. But then at the same time, because we have crossed the cyclical low, so I think it's more likely than not it's stuck in the range and it's likely to be between 7 and 7.2. Gotcha. So we've talked about RMB. The next one to talk about, obviously, is the stock market. At Julius Bear, we've been arguing for range training view, and we identify the range in between 18,000 and 21,000 for the Hang Seng Index. Correct me if I'm wrong, Hal. I think you're also going with a range training view, but your top end of the range is higher at 23,000. So in any way, would you agree that in the second half of the year, most of the opportunities will be with specific themes, specific sectors? And for investors in general, are there any guiding principles that you can share with them? I think we set out the uh, price target of 23,000 for the Hang Seng and 3,400 for the Asia Shanghai Index. I think in late January, the Hang Seng did reach uh, very, very close, only 1% away from 23,000. And the Asia is right at 3,400 at that time. So I don't see a strong reason to revise up or down our price target. You know, firstly, because we've already got there. And secondly, because just now we discussed policies, currencies, the economic outlook and all that. So I would say that because of the piecemeal policy, the economy is going to recover gradually with lots of hesitancy. And therefore, the financial market is going to reflect that hesitancy. So the gradual sort of a warm-up of market confidence. So I think for now, I'm sticking with the original price target, which we set out late October last year. And I don't see a very strong reason to change it for now. And is that right, that we should focus more on specific themes and sectors? Maybe internet, maybe autos, maybe EV, or any sectors that you've been telling clients to focus on? I think the opportunities doesn't come from the overall index level. I think even though like now we are, what, 19,000-ish for the Hang Seng, there's a room for upside in the both of us agree. But then at the same time, I think beyond the overall index level, there are more sectorial opportunities uh, for the second half of the year. For example, we still like the internet sector because the anti-monopoly investigation is largely over and the attitude towards the uh, private enterprises are more friendly, uh, even more encouraging. So internet is such a sector that is set to benefit from this change in attitude. So I would say that internet is a good bet. You know, this guy is a low, very low valuation, very strong cash flow, huge client base, and they have done poorly last year. So this year, there should be a continuing opportunity for them to recover. 
I think for consumer as well, because just now we discussed how we could help the Chinese households by taking away some of the social security burden by giving them cash or consumption coupon, etc., etc. So in one way or the other, the Chinese household should do better in the second half of the year. And then another sector I think is quite interesting is the technology sector, so which is the semiconductor, AI and all that, and also the real estate sector, which is going to benefit from uh, increasing support, policy support for the sector. Uh, so the sector has been beaten up to death last year, and also expectation is so low that it may create at least a trading opportunity for many of the investors. So I would say that just now, even though we are not seeing much about the overall index level increase, but we're seeing more sectoral investment opportunities for the second half of the year. Interesting. So your recommendation is fairly pro-cyclical. We like EV, so I think that may be one of the sectors that investors can consider as well. That's pretty much all we have to discuss today. Thank you very much, Hong Hao, for your sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. Goodbye and speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.